Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Tamara Knopper. She is a sociologist, writer, and editor. She's the editor of the book, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. And it is a book of Mariam's Kaba's writings and interviews. I'm joined by 14 of my classmates. Hi, Spencer calling from Florida, class of 61. Uh, I've been uh, involved, uh, migrated from uh, Black economic development uh, for the first half of my life to uh, uh, sustainable development the second half. <laughs> so that's <laughs> it in, a, in the shortest nutshell possible. All right, uh, George Allen. Hi there. Uh, I'm a class of 63 at Harvard College. Uh, I did law school in Boulder. Jeff Fox. Um, I too, uh, Tamara, I'm a sociologist by training and taught sociology for many years, but then decided to, what I really wanted to do was just to write. So now I'm writing fiction, which is another way of doing sociology, actually. <laughs> okay. Jerry. Good morning, uh, Jerry Secundi. I'm one of the uh, 18 famous or infamous folks that Kent wrote about, class 63. I live in Pasadena, California. And for all of those fo folks that fled California, you may be regretting it now as you freeze to death. So <laughs> we'll be a balmy 70 today. Uh, I'm an environmental lawyer. I did a stint in the Peace Corps, worked for the federal government, state government, oil company, nonprofits, et cetera. So, but still doing some work. Pete, the list of why I, I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire. I'm an editor and writer. And I, I just got back from uh, Utica, New York, uh, which was described to me by people there as a, a refugee city. Uh, you know, Utica was half, it's had half its population. In the 90s, its population was half of what it had been in the 50s and mm. now 20% of the of Utica is is refugees uh, so it's really an interesting town with uh, Vietnamese and Croatians Bosnians Somalis uh, so it was it was interesting to see a city that really talks of itself as being brought back to life partly by refugees righty. Bill. Bill Collins. Grew up in the Boston area, Harvard 63, Navy 20 years, nuclear power and stuff, and then worked on waste disposal for a number of years, and now retired in Aiken, South Carolina with my wife. Um, David Allen, uh, you might say I've had a uh, patchwork of a life, uh, new ventures, academics. The last decades have been activism, both globally and locally here in Concord, Mass. Uh, as I just finished my 60th uh, report yesterday, what it said was my life's entirely focused on strengthening and protecting democracy, and by God, does it need it, sadly. <laughs> uh, John Woodford, class of 63. I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
I worked in the uh, the black press for a while, then the mainstream newspapers, and then academic journalism, and now retired. Okay, Ronnie Blau. Uh, Ron Blau, Newton, Massachusetts, class of 63. Uh, worked most of my life in television and video, still doing some script writing and videos and doing climate democracy volunteering, like a lot of the rest of this group. Okay, Marcy. <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign and its Open Rivers Project in New York City. Um, which advocates uh, fairer, wiser public spending priorities, public policies, and uh, official decisions. Um, and I'm seeking recommendations for the right archivist. Okay, right. <laughs> George, George Jones. George Jones, class of 63. I'm also in Ann Arbor, Michigan, waiting for the snow to start. <laughs> <laughs> right. David. Yes, David Rockefeller, class of 63, uh, Law 66. Um, most of my life has been spent uh, tangent to the arts, both visual and performing. I'm still performing as a, as a speaker. Um, 41 years as a trustee of Museum of Modern Art, where 33 years ago we started Friends of Education, which just last year came out as the Black Arts Council. Very proud of that. And as Peter Grilly knows, uh, I've been very involved with Asian arts, the Asian Cultural Council, etc. It's great to see you all, many of you, for the first time since we graduated. Okay. Doug. Uh, hi, Doug Shapiro. Uh, I live in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, have an MD degree, but haven't actually practiced medicine for at least half of a century. So most of my life is spent doing various types of research uh, and teaching and, and so forth. Okay, Liz. Hi, um, I'm Liz Morey. I'm class of 63 also. Again, I'm, I'm a almost retired uh, clinical psychologist. I'm based in Tacoma Park, Washington, uh, Maryland, just outside of DC, but I identify as a Californian. I grew up in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and lived in Fresno for 29 years. So. All righty, Peter, Peter Grilly. Um, hi, I'm Peter Grilly, also class of 63, but graduated in 65. Um, I live in the town of Harvard, just down the road from um, Concord. And I was particularly interested in the other Peter's comments just now about Utica, New York, because my um, the entire Italian side of my family, my father and his relatives um, emigrated from Italy and settled in Utica um, around, I guess, around 1918 or so. And at that time, Utica was a great magnet for Italian immigrants. And I gather from what Peter just said, has become an extraordinary magnet for Im immigrants from all other parts of the world since then. So I'm glad to be here and looking forward to your comments. Tamara, okay. welcome. Thank you so much for coming and tell us about the abolition movement and the book. So um, 
The book is an edited collection of Miriam Kaba's writings, and she's sorry she couldn't join you, but she was very delighted by the invitation. Her schedule has just been so extremely busy, partly because she just finished um, her master's in library science. Um, so she was finishing classes just this semester on top of working full-time and all of her organizing projects. So, um, but thank you so much for having us on here, having me on here um, to kind of partly represent the book. So the book, We Do This Till We Free Us, um, was a edit collection. And one of the things about it is that it is one of the first published books about the abolitionist, the contemporary abolitionist movement in terms of policing and prisons that was written for a broad audience. So um, one of the earlier books to have been written for a broad audience about abolitionist politics was Angela Y. Davis's Are Prisons Obsolete? Um, and so, you know, one of the things I think makes Miriam's book um, significant is because it was written for a broad audience and for people who are just kind of curious about the political moment, who might have been hearing more about defund the police or abolition because of a lot of the social protests in the last couple of years, maybe seeing more of the term abolitionist or defund the police or defund ICE, right, which is also circulated, and just wanted to kind of better understand more what was going on and how to kind of maybe get involved. Um, and so her book was a series of essays, and I was invited by Haymarket Books to edit it. And I remember when they emailed me and they were like, oh, would you be interested in, you know, uh, having a conversation? But I was like, of course. And I already knew Miriam and we were already cool. Um, and then I'm in the meeting with them over the Zoom and they're like, oh, you know, we're trying to get Miriam to write a book. They'd asked her several times. She already had a working relationship with Haymarket Books um, because she used to be based in Chicago for years. And Haymarket Books is located in Chicago, and a lot of people who are part of Haymarket Publishing are very active in political activism and organizing in Chicago. And they had been trying to convince her for a while to write one, and she had always kind of declined. And then in this certain political moment, she was more open and receptive to the idea. So they were looking for editors, and they asked if I would like to edit. And of course, I said, yes, right? Um, and I remember right after I got off that uh, Zoom meeting with the publisher and editor at uh, Haymarket, I went running. This is when I was still a runner. And I went running because I was just like so excited. And I was just like, you got to be ready for like this opportunity if it does happen. And so um, luckily I was, you know, it happened and the book is out in the world now. So the book is, um, you know, one of the things that I always think is kind of funny is Miriam is a very prolific writer. Um, she actually had a book that came out this year with Andrea Ritchie called No More Police. She has a book that's coming out next year um, with Kelly Hayes about, um, I believe the title is Let This Radicalize You, um, which is a phrase from that Miriam tweeted once. She tweeted something like, let this radicalize you instead of leading you to despair. So the book she has with Kelly Hayes coming out next year is about... Um, uh, it's kind of a introduction to organizing and they, they describe it as a book for people who are beginning organizing that they wish that they had had um, when they first started. So the reason I bring this up is Miriam is very prolific as a writer and she doesn't really like writing. She's talked about that publicly. She doesn't really enjoy writing, right? Um, but that she does it 
partly to kind of, you know, make sense of the world and her work to herself, but also because she thinks it's really important for organizers to kind of document their work. And I come from, you know, an activist background where um, I used to work for an Asian American organization in Philadelphia, where I lived for years. And, you know, a lot of times people were just really busy or they're tired or they were just working on so much, you know, of the actual uh, keeping the organization going and the campaigns going that a lot of times we didn't document our work. And I know a lot of organizers where this is not the case. So Miriam's book is a collection of, um, for the most part, already published works. Many of them came from her blog, which was called Prison Culture. And um, uh, some of you might be familiar with her Twitter handle, Prison Culture, um, which is how I actually first met her. And the first pieces of writing I read of hers was from her blog, Prison Culture. And um, and so she, a lot of the pieces are from there, but a lot of them are, you know, edited podcast interviews, um, a lot of essays that she's written and co-written. And there is one original piece in the book um, that was published for the first time there with Rachel Herzing. And that is a, a piece um, that is, um, Rachel Herzing is, one of the co-founders of Critical Resistance, which if you're not familiar is an abolitionist organization that people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis and others helped establish like three decades ago. Um, and so they're a prison abolitionist organization that's done a lot of really important work in terms of organizing local campaigns against prisons, but also a lot of political education work um, and, and so forth in terms of broadening our consciousness, um, critical prisons. So the book itself is a collection of that. And I was, um, Miriam had supplied, um, she had provided a lot of the pieces that she wanted in the book, but because I had been a longtime reader of Miriam's work, and including in her blog, there are pieces that I wanted to include. And a lot of the pieces I kind of encouraged inclusion of were pieces that had been part of organizing campaigns that she was a part of, um, because I thought it was really important for people to see examples of what were efforts of abolitionist organizing campaigns. So I see a couple of hands up, but I'll just say very quickly, the title of the book, We Do This Till We Free Us, that's a phrase that a lot of organizers and activists used in the case regarding Rakia Boyd. And Rakia Boyd was killed by a police officer. She was a young black woman who was killed by a police officer in Chicago. And along with Rakia Boyd's brother, um, a lot of uh, organizers, particularly uh, Black Youth Project um, and others, organized a campaign to hold the police officer, Dante Servant, accountable. And one of the reasons why I think that campaign is really significant is because they were not calling for the police officer to get locked up in prison. <laughs> Right. So they were still trying to maintain a commitment to prison abolition, but they had a whole list of demands regarding him being removed from um, uh, being a police officer, a whole list of demands of how they wanted redress and how they wanted accountability. And they kept that campaign going for quite a while and worked with Rekia Boyd's brother. So that title, We Do This Till We Free Us, comes from a chant that they would regularly chant in relationship to that campaign. But that's why I wanted some of those pieces from the blog that Miriam hadn't originally supplied because it was her her blog piece <laughs> thinking out loud about the campaigns that she was a part of. And I thought that was a really important part of the book. So abolition is... Um, 
a contemporary movement. It's not new. It's something that people have been organizing for at least around prisons for at least about like 50, 60 years. And so there's different debates right now about what abolition means, because some people will talk about themselves as a prison abolitionist, but they're not necessarily a police abolitionist, right? So for example, I mentioned that Miriam's new book um, co-authored with Andrea Ritchie, who is an attorney and an organizer and a writer, um, is called No More Police. And one thing Miriam has talked about is that it will, you know, a lot of times people might be willing to kind of abolish prisons as a form of punishment, but they don't necessarily want to abolish police. So abolition from kind of the book's perspective, and I feel comfortable saying this on behalf of Miriam, is really kind of this idea of like changing everything about how we deal with issues of accountability, how we address issues of harm, and how we address issues of violence. So abolitionists are often accused of not hearing about harm or violence, but a lot of abolitionists actually have been sometimes the victims of harm and violence, particularly gender and sexual violence. A lot of abolitionists talk about their own personal stories of trying to seek accountability through the state or trying to seek sometimes punishment through the state and just the way that they got treated. So in this case, abolition would mean the abolishment of prisons, right, um, as the means of punishment. But it would also mean the abolition of the police and thinking about other ideas of how to keep people safe and how to rethink public safety on a structural and, and kind of a logistical level. And, um, and the reason why this is important is because you have people who are sometimes open to abolishing prisons where they might say, well, I'm opposed to sometimes like you have people who are abolished, uh, propose abolishing the death penalty, right? But a lot of times abolishing the death penalty results in what? It results in life sentences without parole. And that's usually the option that's given instead of the death penalty, right? Um, but, you know, so you have all these people who have life sentences without parole. This is connected to the aging population, right? And so you have people who are just spending like 40, 50, 60 years in prison and dying in prison if they're not already killed by the conditions in prison. So, um, you have, you know, abolition is also a way to kind of challenge what have been sometimes prison reforms where people say no death penalty, but we want life without parole. Well, guess what? Life without parole is also kind of being sentenced to, to a slow death, right? And a lot of times a premature death. Um, and so part of the problem, though, is if you abolish prisons without abolishing other forms of, of criminalization, is you often have then people who are being um, held captive kind of outside of prison walls. So one of the things that's happening now, and one of my major areas of research um, is around kind of tech and surveillance, is you increasingly have people who are wearing ankle monitors, they're being kind of, they're held captive in their homes, right? And what people are describing as digital jails or prisons. And so, um, and a lot of people who have sometimes had to use these monitors or who advocate on behalf of people who are experiencing digital jail is they talk about how these digital jails don't actually encourage people to try to live better lives. They often punish people for trying to work. They isolate them in their homes away from being able to have like meaningful relationships or to show up for others in their lives that they want to show up for. So they might not be able to go to a birthday party or they might not be able to kind of attend their children's play at school because the, you know, the ankle monitor will say, you know, you violated the terms of your release, 
right? So there's also ways where sometimes people, instead of getting prison, um, and this is something people are talking about, especially right now with issues around addictions, mental health issues, and so forth, um, people are talking about kind of the uh, treatment industrial complex, which is a play on the word prison industrial complex. And they're pointing out that, you know, there are people being offered the option of kind of getting rehabilitated from their addictions or from substance abuse or from mental health issues um, instead of going to prison. But what that does a lot of times is it sets up these really intense terms where you're basically being told if you can't get, you know, your addiction under control, which is very difficult to do, right? Or if you can't kind of get healthy this way, you have the risk of going to prison. Think about that pressure on somebody, right? And what is the likelihood that that's really going to necessarily kind of motivate you to try to get your life together? But there's also just a lack of kind of really useful services and care and so forth. So part of the reason why people are are both trying to abolish prison, but they're also saying we need to abolish other forms of criminalization is because You could abolish prisons, but there could be all these other ways that people are being kind of held captive, are being stripped of meaningful options to really kind of try to get their lives together if they have committed harm, right? Um, And meaningful options to be able to successfully reintegrate into society, right? And so part of abolishing prisons, why it's not enough to abolitionists is because if you abolish prisons, but you don't abolish kind of the ways we deal with harm and the and that you think the only way to deal with harm is intense punishment instead of other options for trying to hold people accountable. It means you just transfer a lot of the logic and the tools of prison to the broader kind of um, world, right? And that is what is happening right now. So you have calls for prison reform or for shorter sentences, and we want to get people out of the prisons. But what they are, what is happening a lot of times is they're subjected to forms of punishment that aren't often encouraging them to be able to kind of successfully reintegrate into society, or that it doesn't necessarily encourage the best of them to try to emerge and to be cultivated and to be nurtured, right? Now, when you ask who benefits from kind of changing, right, the prison industrial complex, and I just want to say very quickly what that term means. Prison industrial complex was a term that um, Mike Davis, who was uh, an openly radical, he was a white male, openly radical writer, right? Um, He recently died of cancer very early in his life, uh, prematurely, like very early, right? And he died of cancer just about like a month or two ago. He wrote about the prison industrial complex in an article, I believe for Nation Magazine, if I remember correctly. And the term was a play on military industrial complex, which many of you know was Dwight D. Eisenhower's phrase when he um, gave his farewell speech as president. And basically prison industrial complex is thinking about the kind of interlocking between industry, between jobs, employment, the economy, and punishment, and captivity, and prison. So he was right about the prison boom and all these prisons being built in California. But part of what he's also getting at is this issue that a lot of abolitionists think about. What could we have instead of prisons, right? Both in terms of how do we hold people accountable for dealing with harm and punishment and violence, right? But also what does that money and stolen time go to 
that goes to prisons that could go to other things. So when you ask about kind of who benefits from prison abolition, not to be glib, but people would say everybody, right? So for example, New York City, Mayor Adams, who, you know, a cop and a pro-cop mayor, right? He's talking about cutting the library budget, right? He's talking about cutting like the education budget, right? He's talking about, I mean, and 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 so there's all these important programs that give people meaning to their lives that can try to encourage and inspire the best of us to emerge that can like try to create positive social relationships, right? These are being cut in the budget, but he plans on increasing the police budget. And the police in New York City, one in six city workers are already NYPD. Think about if we had less NYPD officers and more librarians and more teachers and more progressive social workers, right? And also paid them better, do you know what I mean? And gave them better working conditions, right? Think about the types of services that would be available to everybody, right? But also I'll just end this really quickly. When you say who's benefits from abolition, think about every kind of campaign for social justice that we might care about, whether it's um, indigenous people trying to kind of deal with, you know, um, uh, having better environmental conditions around water, right? Um, whether it is labor organizing, and trying to protest your working conditions, right? And to try to, and having a strike at work so you can have better wages and working conditions. Whether it is access to um, a, a, a safe and legal abortion, right? All of these things are being met with criminalization. All of these things are being met with policies to try to criminalize dissent, try to criminalize being able to access certain reproductive rights. Um, you know, uh, you try to protest your working conditions as uh, a labor union, they'll call the police on you, right? So there's also a way where a lot of the things that we might politically care about or the positive things we want to try to build in the world, we're often being prevented from being able to do that because of political repression. And a lot of times, the question is being meted out by police officers, right? And so that's also where a lot of us will benefit from having less police in the world too. Okay. Uh, David uh, Allen. What a wondrously rich provocation. <laughs> if I ask my question about uh, whether there are any ties back to the uh, provocateur of our era, Saul Alinsky, I'll get in the way of what this conversation should be. So instead of that, uh, let me ask uh, practicalities here. And of course, this does touch on the whole issue of activism and organizing activism. Uh, we all know that this is a steep uphill climb, almost Sisyphean to mm -hmm. go there and make this happen. Uh, let me invite uh, some reflections on um, not just the possibilities of getting there, but how might we get there and uh, how in practical terms, for instance, those of us who are concerned to see some of these reforms come about uh, get involved. Thanks so much. Sure, thank you. So, you know, there's a couple of ways I think People are doing, and this is something Miriam has talked about a lot, and, and she talks about it in her, there's different 
pieces in her book that talk about, but she also talks about this in other spaces. So she actually has a podcast. She, Miriam um, has several organizations that she's incubated and been a part of because she believes in kind of building containers for other people to be able to come together and do work, right? So it's how do you generate more kind of opportunities for other people to do work, just as you were kind of asking about. And one of the, the podcasts that she's a part of is called One Million Experiments. And the reason she called it that is because she, she says frequently, there's not going to be one correct way to do abolition, right? It's about having kind of a certain principle that, you know, you're going to be opposed to getting people locked up even your enemy, right? Or you're going to be opposed to kind of criminalization and think about other options for holding people accountable. Again, this is why the Dante Servant case, and we do this till we free us, and the fact that they didn't call for him to be incarcerated, but they did have a sustained organized campaign to hold him accountable, right? So part of the reason I bring this up is that she's always encouraging kind of a variety of efforts and experiments and, and how do we try to get there? So some of the practical ways that people have done this, for example, is um, there is trying to introduce new forms of accountability and 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 kind of violence reduction in schools, K through 12 schools. Right. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard the school to prison pipeline and, and so forth. Right. That's a kind of a famous policy phrase. Now, there's a lot of debate about that phrase. Scholars have written about kind of what they see as some of the problems with that phrase. Right. But it became a very famous kind of policy phrase a couple of decades ago, school to prison pipeline. And part of it is because of these very harsh kind of discipline policies in K through 12 schools. Right. So police officers, school resource officers, but also the introduction of kind of zero tolerance policies. And part of the history of zero tolerance policies was on the surface in schools, they were supposed to decrease the possibility of school shootings and students bringing in weapons like guns. Right. But they had become kind of applied to a range of infractions, including a student, quote unquote, having an attitude or kind of acting out. Right. Or maybe getting in a fight at school. And so what you have is just like you have in kind of, you know, the adult population with young people, it's uh, primarily black students who are getting kind of the most targeted with these school discipline policies and often receiving the harshest punishments um, in terms of um, uh, being um, uh, referred to uh, the, uh, the um, police, the act, you know, and the courts or getting um expelled, right? You also have a lot of, um, there's been a lot of really important reports about disabled students and the way that they have been uh, uh, um, disproportionately punished through these policies. So what you have on a practical level is different schools are experimenting with kind of what does it mean to not rely on school resource officers or police officers. They're introducing things like yoga and meditation. They're interesting things like um, being trained in kind of um, de-escalation, right? How do we try to de-escalate conflict or de-escalate violence? Or how do we try to have more kind of rehabilitative methods for dealing with kind of conflicts between each other or harm between each other at the school? And some of them are finding it really useful, right? Um, uh, in terms of kind of decreasing harm, but also creating a different environment at the school where people don't feel like they're just kind of policed at school, but that they have different tools, right? For kind of dealing with the environment and the way that they're relating to each other. 
Another um, uh, thing that people are looking for is they're trying to decrease in cities the reliance on the police for dealing with um, wellness checks or mental health checks, right? When you think about, for example, the aging population, right? A lot of times we're going to be thinking about issues around wellness and our kind of own wellness and the wellness of people that we care about, right? Um, a lot of us as younger people who might be in caretaking positions of older people that we love, right? Well, a lot of times when you are calling for kind of help around, let's say you haven't heard from somebody in a while. Right. And you're, you want someone to do a wellness check or somebody might be having of any age a mental health episode. Right. And you want some help. Um, a lot of times what is happening is when people are, are calling the police, they're not always calling the police because they feel that they're in danger or that they think a crime is being committed, per se. It's oftentimes they're calling because they need help with the situation that they feel overwhelmed by. Right. I'll give you an example. Uh, someone told me a story about how um, they called their landlord about the really loud music their neighbors were playing. They called the management company and they said, can you send out an email saying, please stop playing loud music late at night, right? And they said, I had tried, you know, knocking my neighbor's door, but nobody answered, right? And the landlord and the management company said, why don't you call the police? And so, it's, you know, it's like the fact that that becomes kind of the default option, right? And what happens in some cities is when you're calling the city about some complaints, like you hear arguing, or you might be concerned about a domestic violence situation because you hear, you know, screaming and fighting through the walls, right? People are sometimes calling because there are real issues that they're concerned about. They might not feel that they have the capacity or they might be afraid for their own safety to address it. But what happens is a lot of these calls actually get routed to the police and the police are being kind of brought in to deal with a range of things, right? Evictions, right? Um, mental health episodes, loud music, um, arguing, right? And one of the things that happens is, you know, when you have interaction with the police and you have interaction with a state agent, who is weaponized, right? And also often has, um, is seen as legitimate in society. And this doesn't, when I say legitimate, it doesn't mean we can't politically question them. It means they're given this kind of aspect of legitimacy, right? Well, that's a lot of danger if the way that you're being checked on for your wellness is somebody in that position. And so what you have in some cities is some cities are experimenting with, how about if we have trained mental health professionals who go and do the mental health check on somebody instead of the police, right? And so that's an example of a practical step that people are trying to take to try to kind of change, you know, uh, um, uh, the role to try to get rid of the role of the police to abolish it, but to also acknowledge people have some needs that need to be met. How do we have other type of work and nonviolence work, right? Uh, instead of violence workers like the police, how do we have maybe other workers come and try to help address that, right? Um, you know, on my campus, we took a vote on whether or not we wanted to have, um, you know, um, how we wanted to deal with it, like if we wanted to have more campus police, right? And, and, and so forth. There's a real concern for college professors around our safety and the safety of our students when you hear about kind of people, you know, um, 
shooting in schools and so forth. There's real concerns, right? But you know, we didn't want more police in that capacity. But what they what they did offer were kind of more de-escalation, kind of like you know, crisis type of training. And that's one of the things that is happening also on a practical level. Um, I'm Asian American, and as I'm sure you've heard of, there's all these concerns about anti-Asian violence, and I very much have those concerns too in terms of the violence that's happening on the street. And you see all these videos and stuff, and in the subways, right, targeting Asians. Well, you have Asian Americans who are very concerned about their safety. And what they're doing is they're training people on de-escalation. They're building kind of um, groups to escort people home. They are training people on kind of um, defensive tactics, right? And so these are practical examples of how people are thinking about very real issues, but trying to kind of phase out the reliance on the police for that. Part of what abolitionists also think a lot about is investments. What do we actually invest in? Whether it is investing in job creation, whether it's investing in, um, uh, you know, uh, challenging the cost of rent, right? So people don't feel so desperate about money, right? Um, This is not to take away, it's not to say that all harm or violence or desire for social control will disappear with abolition. Right. It's not a magic, you know, kind of um, uh, it's not a, 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 you know, magical solution. Right. But it is to say when we think about why are people robbing people, where does the desperation come from? Where does the kind of anger come from? Right. Um, abolitionists would say it's not just absence. It's not just getting rid of certain institutions. It's also investing in other institutions. It's saying, let's have quality jobs. Let's fight for unionization um, and the rights of unions. Let's fight for, um, you know, uh, less public property to become private property. So people actually have parks and spaces that they can gather, right? Let's, you know, have streetlights, Right. So that way people actually can kind of see down their street and not kind of, you know, um, let's have, um, you know, certain neighborhoods invested in. Right. And so what you have is there are different elected officials and campaigns where they're in working class neighborhoods. And they're asking people questions like, you know, what do you worry about? What, what do you think would keep you safe? Right. And part of the question is, you know, it's not so much always about, will the police keep us safe? It's also like, what is missing in the world that could maybe help increase people's um, sense of safety, but also decrease people's kind of um, inclination to harm, right? And this is where the investment comes in, right? How do we decrease the likelihood Right. It doesn't mean that it's going to disappear. People harming each other is going to disappear. But how do we decrease the likelihood of people wanting to harm other people? How do we invest in things like non-carceral mental health services? How do we invest in things like um, getting people to think about their gender politics? Right. A lot of people who aren't like, you know, domestic violence and gender violence are usually the biggest forms of violence. Most people are going to be harmed physically by someone they personally know, right? Same with homicide. Homicide is often people in the same neighborhood or who have some type of relationship to each other, right? How do we decrease people's sense of kind of like desperation around money, 
right? That might make them say, I don't care what I'm going to do. I'll just commit violence or I'll rob this person. or I feel this, you know what I mean? Um, how do we, so this is where people talk about investing in good jobs, investing in, you know, um, better mental health services that are non-carceral, right? And non kind of uh, forced on you. And you're going to be put into like, you know, police custody if you don't use them. How do we invest in, you know, free um, uh, national health care? That's an abolitionist issue. Right. Most people's debt, a big part of their debt comes from medical debt. Right. Um, and so how do we make, you know, higher education free? Right. That's an abolitionist issue, because guess what? Higher education is a huge part now. College debt. Right. How do we make uh, the cost of living adjusted? And so part of it is there's all these things that we can fight for um, on a national level, but on a neighborhood level. And you have elected officials who are doing these really interesting campaigns where they're going around and asking residents in working class and poor neighborhoods, you know, what makes you feel safe? What worries you? Right. And what you find in some of this data is, yes, there are going to be people who might want more policing, but a lot of times what they're actually expressing sometimes is we want to feel less vulnerable to harm, which is understandable. We want to feel that we can kind of walk down our streets. We want to, you know, there's all these things. And so part of what abolitionists try to think about is what are the things we can also build and invest in and fight for? Right. That can decrease the likelihood that someone will feel so angry or desperate or violent to commit harm against somebody else or financially desperate. Right. So real quickly, um, the police have not always been good at collecting data on themselves. Right. Because reporting data. So there has been difficulty getting data on kind of anything from what people call police misconduct to um, uh, death in police custody or police murders, right? So for example, uh, I'll give you an example of New York City and, and I'm not from New York and I want you to know I'm not in love with New York, okay? So the thing about New York, for example, is historically many of you probably have heard of the term stop and frisk, right? And if we think about back in the day, things like driving while black was the phrase that was used and so forth. There are all these efforts to try to kind of create more data to hold the police accountable, so back in the day, I remember lawyers and different scholars, they would use zip codes because at the time, police didn't have to report the race of the person they were stopping in cars, right? And so zip code became, for some people, scholars, a proxy to say, well, you know, if we think about the segregated nature of a city and what zip codes are likely to have certain racial groups, we can try to deduct who from what zip codes are more likely to be stopped, right? But in New York, for example, when Elliot Spitzer, um, who was the attorney general, tried to get more data on stop and frisk, right? right? Um, that data, the police unions and the police forces were like, we're not going to comply, right? And eventually that data is now collected in stop and frisk, but there's some real problems with that data where the police will also include some really kind of sketchy information. Like they'll literally, they'll literally include stuff like, what was somebody's appearance like and how did they act, right? And so we'll say things like wearing a hoodie. Like if you look at the Excel spreadsheet, it'll literally be like wearing a hoodie, wearing a hoodie, wearing a hoodie, had tattoos on their face, looked nervous, looked angry, right? And I asked a criminal defense attorney, a, a law professor who used to be a criminal defense attorney, I said, why would they include that data? And he goes, they include that data so they can use it against the person in court. And they can say, well, I had a reason to stop them because guess what? 
right? They were acting nervous or they had a hoodie on, right? And so this speaks to a larger problem is that there have been demands to get police data. Police have often fought against supplying that data. And a lot of the data sets like um, the federal government and the FBI started collecting data on like um, uh, police deaths and so forth is police, local police departments don't have to provide that. In fact, a lot of the crime data sets that the FBI collects, like the Uniform Crime Report, which is considered the national data set, local police departments get to voluntarily report that day. They don't have to report that day. So that's one issue, right? But what has happened, um, Mr. Woodford, is since then, there's been a lot of kind of private citizens as well as companies like um, like the Guardian, the Washington Post, right? There's also mapping police violence. They have started creating their own data sets. And so you have kind of these data entrepreneurs that have emerged in response to the state not making that publicly available. And so they've done some really innovative stuff regarding how they collect this data. But this becomes a, a kind of conundrum. What does it mean that we have to go to kind of private data sources? And, and in some cases, have a subscription to the Washington Post to get what should be public Right. The issue with public data is a lot of times police officers and police departments, they're not going to provide data that makes them look bad. And I've actually done a lot of research on kind of crime data and the history of crime data is actually police departments wanting crime data because they were getting kind of reamed by journalists and elected officials as not dealing well with crime. And they said, well, we need more data. And so crime data has often been a tool of propaganda for the police, right? You know what I mean? Because it's like they can say, well, if crime is up, we need more money to fight them. If crime is down, they could say, we did our job, quote unquote, effectively, right? So there is a lot of real interesting things going on right now with data sources, but it's been kind of mainly privatized um, in terms of kind of these private data sources on what is a public issue. Well, I'm wondering about what these other options are uh, because there still is, there is violence, yeah. There are people who are going to commit violence. The, a lot of it, uh, uh, whether racially or ethnically inspired or gen and so on. But um, in Spain, yeah, there have been some efforts locally, not to abolish. I don't think I don't. I don't. I'm not aware of any strong movement to abolish the police, but to restructure okay. uh, and to put them. Uh, to, in, to include uh, much more contact and integration with other kinds of social services. But this so far is really mostly at the, at the level of, of a city, um, in a, one city in particular with, a, with a, a woman mayor who seems to be very um, attentive to, uh, to this sort of problem. But I'm wondering, uh, the world is very big and there, and there are all kinds of practices, you know, from New Zealand to Europe and everywhere else, um, can work work? Can you point to some place that has the kind of system that you are hoping to establish in the United States? Is is there some place where uh, where they are controlling violence, they're protecting people without uh, resorting to prison or uh, heavy police intervention? I would say I would not be able to do that, and I haven't seen studies that could do that. I think it's more where. There are different efforts, just like in the United States, to do that, um, and I, and and so forth. So I would say I cannot, I personally cannot pinpoint to one country and say they have abolished the police, 
and and so forth and abolish prisons, right? Um, and I have not seen any study that has been able to do that either. So it might exist, but I have not seen that, right? Um, but what I would say is in other countries, there are also strong abolitionist movements and, you know, and they're also trying to raise these questions. Well, I think this is, you know, what we're kind of have been talking about, right, is that um, you basically have to kind of experiment with different safety measures. This is what I said people are trying to do with um, uh, the um, in schools, right? And in some of those schools, they are reporting that, you know, it's helping, right? This different measure, you know, different kind of tools for dealing with um, anger, dealing with kind of de-escalating conflict, you know, disciplinary issues is helping, right? Um, and so, you know, I think what often happens is people kind of try to, um, and I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but people will sometimes say, well, you know, what are you going to do about violence, right? Well, the answer is what I've been telling you is these are the experiments people are trying to do. And a lot of the people who are abolitionists have experienced harm and violence. There's kind of this idea that all victims have a uniform kind of position about how they want to deal with victimization. That is not true. A lot of times what happens is victims who actually want less harsh punishment measures or who are abolitionists actually get kind of erased in a lot of these conversations. They're not often respected by um, the prosecutors, right? The prosecutors will often ignore victims who want a different kind of uh, dealing with punishment, right? Um, they often are not respected in kind of social commentary, right? You don't actually hear a lot of them. But if you look at the scholarship and if you listen to organizers and activists, many of them have been victims of violence and pretty extreme violence, right? And they have, you know, their processing through that experience has led them to a different direction towards abolition, right? Um, you have people who've done scholarship where they've interviewed victims of violence and harm and have found that there's much more complicated views people have about accountability and about policing, right? That doesn't get kind of, in, you know, published a lot or circulated a lot in these debates. And part of it is, you know, um, this idea that if you can't kind of have an answer right now for what are we going to do about violence right now, you know, um, that's a pretty tall order. And it's kind of an unfair kind of uh, a, a question in some ways, because I know it might come from a good place, but it's often used to kind of suggest if you can't solve violence right now and say all violence will disappear, then we can't even entertain this as a credible kind of possibility. But these experiments people are doing on the ground with their schools and institutions and in their families and, you know, in the, you know, as lawyers and as people, you know, all this stuff. Right. And what I'd say too, is that people are also rethinking social services in a very particular way. So part of the reason why I say non-carceral mental health services, you have social workers. There's a real interesting upheaval going on within the social work industry and in schools of social work, where you have abolitionist professors and students who are raising questions about how can social work be useful for kind of building a certain future, but not where social workers become kind of the ref referral to the prison state. Do you know what I mean? Right? Um, people are taking on um, uh, uh, family services. 
right? They're saying we need more, you know, to think about abolishing family services and thinking about other ways to deal with harm and abuse within families. They would never deny that harm, abuse, or neglect exists. They would never deny that it needs to happen. But they point out that things like child welfare services is often used to take custody away from families, to put people incarcerated and to separate families through incarceration or through criminalization, right? So there's also some really important stuff happening where people are rethinking social services, right? What does it mean that things like um, public assistance, right? I'm somebody who teaches sociology of the family and we look at public assistance and things like, um, you know, uh, things like food stamps and so forth, right? What does it mean that you can be criminalized for fraud, for public assistance, but you can legally have insulin companies charging a ton of money until fairly recently with Biden's kind of change around insulin prices, right? So there's also stuff where people are thinking about why is there so much carceral punishment tied up to just even social services? And they're rethinking how social services are administered, right? And that's part of the rethinking everything as well, right? Um, and so I think that people are, take violence very seriously, but if you're looking for kind of can you give me one size fits all solution that will stop violence right now in this moment? You're kind of setting it up for an impossible answer, right? And and I don't want abolition to fail. We take harm and violence seriously, but we're trying to think about other ways to deal with it that doesn't reproduce or create new harm and violence. Well, some places must be dealing with this better than others. And I was just wondering if you've looked at some that have are closer to what uh, what what you hope to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. What I'm experiencing is partly that I think you're definitely preaching to the choir here. Um, and uh, I think I may be saying something similar to what uh, Jeff is saying, which is the whole issue of scaling up. Uh, and so I was thinking about uh, proxies for the data that you don't have. And I'm thinking that a couple of proxies are uh, just measures of violence in different societies or even in different cities, and also measures of um, uh, the percentage of people who are in prison, um, and that these are kind of proxies, and that if you look at those two things, that it might help you, you know, think about where people are uh, understanding again that those are uh, culture specific and they may not, you know, transfer directly in any way, but that that might give you some uh, leverage in terms of where scaling up has occurred or is is occurring. And I think the other thing is what I'm hearing you say, which is something that I believe in, is that a lot of this change is going to be incremental. It's not necessarily, you know, you know, the, the example for me is always seatbelts. You know, it took a generation for people to figure out that, yeah, really you need seatbelts. Um, and so I'm hearing that just opening up a conversation and using words like abolition, which at least for me before this discussion were, you know, I'm thinking 1850s, you know, I'm not thinking of 2020. And so I think the, the ways that you're opening up the discussion are certainly helpful for me. And certainly I'm thinking also about principles of restorative justice. And I was reading a book about that and it was talking about some, some person who was a criminal and who was saying, you know, it's, it's easier for me to be in prison than it is for me to face the people that I um, hurt. And uh, so I think the whole issue of restorative justice and how you make that happen so that the 
victims are brought into the conversation and are not denied and are not overlooked. So basically, that's my spiel. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, uh, Ron, Ronnie Blau. Um, yeah, um, I was reading a, a chapter in a book called Behave by Robert Sapolsky. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a primatologist and neurobiologist. And in this book, he kind of demolishes free will altogether. And then he has a chapter um, which is called Biology, the Criminal Justice System, and oh, why not free will? Okay. And he basically says the criminal justice system is absolutely ridiculous because people don't control if they grow up to be a criminal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I totally recommend the book and that chapter. However, I haven't heard from you in an extreme case because you said, well, there's, you know, we'll have to experiment on how to keep people safe, you know, and we'll go in and we'll do this and that. But to make it work and in terms of the public, I would think you have to say, well, in an extreme case, I'll, I'll make up one, somebody murders somebody, you know, obviously, let's say unprovoked, murders another person, murders another person, and it seems like he might keep on going. Okay, that's a hypothetical example. What would you do in an extreme case beyond saying you would experiment and how to deal with that? I mean, but I, I'm going to just kind of stop you with the extreme case thing, because that is sure. just not common. And I think what happens is people use these extreme cases once again to kind of try to, you know, trip somebody up or say, what would you do in this situation and so uh, forth? Excuse me. I'm not trying to trip you up. I'm just trying to use it as a hypothetical example. I'm not saying it. But it, it's, 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 I, I just wanted to hear what might happen if somebody seems like they will keep on doing violent act. That's all. I mean, this is not to say that people don't need to kind of be removed from, you know, um, interactions with people. People need to need serious help or they need to kind of be separated from people. Right. But when we think about prison. Right. You know, it's interesting because um, I was reading a case the other day about um, these family members who did not want the death penalty for a person who had murdered a family member. and. At first, I thought, oh, this is interesting because I've seen some family members say, I don't want the death penalty because, you know, it won't bring it won't restore us. It won't bring somebody back. And it's a tool of violence against people to be able to have the death penalty. But in this case, they said the death penalty wouldn't be good enough for this person. And what they did, we want them to have prison. And one of the things about prison is, you know, they're. As much as like, you know, many of us have maybe not been inside of a prison, whether incarcerated or to visit somebody, people are very aware of wanting people in prison. There's a certain understanding that prison is a violent place to be in a cage, right? There's a certain understanding that to end up in prison is going to put you in harm's way and in a very severe way and to be really threatened, right? by, you know, experiencing violence in prison, right? So there's a way where I would say, you know, when we think about these extreme cases, part of it isn't to say we don't need to separate somebody or that this person doesn't need to kind of be removed from interaction with people in the immediate sense and to get serious help. 
But it's also saying we do not need to put them in a cage where the likelihood that they will experience violence or sexual violence or physical violence being in that space increases, right? It's saying there can be other ways to try to kind of deal with that particular. Yeah, I was never advocating cages. Put put them in no, a luxury hotel. Yeah, and I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying that you were. It's just saying I'm saying that's kind of when people we don't think about the different ways of accountability. And that's what I was trying to say in different examples I've given is that people are not denying that accountability needs to happen. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest myths is that people sometimes assume abolitionists don't care about accountability. Um, but the issue is a lot of people conflate accountability with police or prisons. And that's partly what abolitionists are trying to challenge is that why is that our to go default with how we deal with harm? When we're talking about rehabilitative justice, part of that is part of the work of abolition is also cultural work. It's shifting how we actually kind of culturally think about things like accountability, right? Why is the default to put them in a cage? And I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but why is it that we can't think of separation in a different way that wouldn't necessarily be putting them in a cage, right? But thinking about how to kind of, you know, work with, you know, the situation and separate them in that moment, right? Why is it that a lot of times when people are thinking about um, what will restore them, the idea of someone being kind of violated forever for the rest of their life is what restores them. It's vengeance, right? I'm not saying that they shouldn't feel that way. I'm saying though that that's a cultural kind of zeitgeist that abolitionists are also trying to kind of think about is how do we think of public safety? These are all also, these are physical material questions, but they're also cultural questions, right? What have we been encouraged to think is harm, right? When you're talking, um, Liz, about rehabilitative justice and about how some of these people have perpetrated harm, like the deep shame they feel, right? And, and understandably so. So I'm not trying to say they shouldn't feel shame, but there's a way where part of, you know, people have talked about this. Mary Miss talked about this in some of her interviews. She said, you know, do we really encourage a culture that allows people to take accountability, right? Do we really encourage a culture where somebody could actually say, I committed harm and I want to try to figure out ways to restore it and to not just be kind of like seen as somebody who, you know, is always lying or is always, you know, is just, you know, and, and this isn't to say we shouldn't be vigilant about these things, but there's a way where, you know, part of it is, do we encourage a culture where people could actually be rehabilitated? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that's cultural work as well. The abolitionists are thinking about, do you know what I mean? As well as the logistical kind of physical material aspects of it. All right. Well, listen, Tamara has to go. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, and I just want to say thank you so much. Um, you were a very engaging audience and group of people to be in conversation with. So thank you. And I want to say, I really appreciate what you just said about you know, that's going to be a long project. And I think that is part of the work and it's part of, you know, being disciplined and diligent and just really kind of committed to um, uh, the future, right? And to working on that. And I appreciate what you said about, you know, it's going to take a long time to turn the ship around, but we have to acknowledge that the ship is going in the wrong direction. And I agree. And so it's partly how do we kind of create a new direction. So I appreciate um, you sharing your insight from your um, legal experience. So I want to thank everybody. I apologize, but I have to run. That was Tamara Knopper. She is editor of the book titled, We Do This Till We Free Us. Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. 
And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>